ready to go through Genesis tonight. And we're not going through it, we're going through the first 11 chapters. And so I want you to stand with me one more time. And tonight we're going to talk about the growth of evil. Doesn't that sound edifying, the growth of evil? But that's what uh, Genesis shows us, and we're going to look at that tonight. So how many of you are ready for the Word of God? How many of you are hungry for the Word of God? Amen? Amen. So Father, we just thank you right now for your blessing on God's house. As we get into the Word, we pray, speak to our hearts, edify us in the faith, strengthen us, Lord, and we thank you for it. We thank you for your blessing, for the the great teacher of the church, the Holy Spirit of God, opening our eyes and helping us to comprehend what we see tonight, what we learn. In Jesus' name, would you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, tonight, renew my mind. Give me a biblical worldview. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. And then after I am done teaching, we've got, I think, nine students that are going to receive a diploma who are on the dean's list at SUM. We've got nine folks on the dean's list. Amen. God's doing a lot of things at Turning Point. COVID or not. Amen. Uh, all right. Tonight, we're going to uh, go all the way through part of chapter 6. And I do want to, it's very important what we're going to see. I can't deal with the flood tonight because I've got to deal with what preceded the flood. I've got to deal with what helps the flood make sense. Why would God wipe out the whole human race uh, and every living thing? What would bring God to that place? What would do it? So, We need to understand that before we actually talk about the flood, because the flood was a monumental, epical, um, really almost inconceivable event. And um, so before we look at that humongous judgment of God, we're going to look at what led up to it. Now, as we look at chapters four through six, we're going to witness the rapid spread of evil and corruption in the world. We're going to see why God judged the world. Now, in chapter 4, we see that 24 of the 26 verses in chapter 4 track the life and the descendants of Cain, beginning with the first murder. So I'm going to pick up chapter 4 and just start reading in verse 1. And if you've got your Bible, you can read along with me. Or is it on the screen? Yeah, it's going to be on the screen. So is it up there? Oh, it's behind me. Okay. So, now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord, first child born with an Abel. Some of you, that went right over your head. (laughs) Because Adam and Eve didn't have an Abel, because they weren't born. All right? So, Cain was the first child born and the first one with an Abel. I don't know why I said that. It's not going to get you saved or not, but I just wanted you to know that. Just mark it, okay? Um, Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now, we don't know what kind of offering this was. Don't know if it was uh, for sin. Uh, We don't know what it was for. I suspect it had something to do with some kind of a sin offering because God rejected it because it was not a blood offering. Okay? And that matters, and I'll read it to you in a moment. Now, so Cain brought a, a veggie offering, but, but Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now, I'm going to contend that that shows he has some understanding of what God was looking for for the covering of sin, because he brought the firstborn, that points all the way down to Christ, and it was a sacrifice of a life in order to cover sin. And it says... The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And look what Cain did. He got very angry. His countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you offer the right kind of offering, I'll accept yours just like I did Abel's. And if you do not do well... Sin lies at the door. If you don't come to me, says God, by the way I've designed and called for, sin is waiting to pounce on you. Isn't that powerful? So sin is pictured as sort of a lion in the thicket waiting to pounce if you choose to try to get to God your own way and not God's way. Now, and its desire is for you. Sin's desire is for you and me. But you should rule over it. It it doesn't have to get you if you do things right, if you come to me the right way. Sin will not triumph over you. Now, Abel had brought an offering that required the shedding of blood. And the Bible teaches in Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Please catch that. This is why the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was so necessary because our good works can't get us there. Muhammad can't get you there. He had nothing to do with the shedding of blood. Buddha can't get you there. Being a good person can't get you there. Being a good parent can't get you there. Never getting a traffic ticket can't get you there. Giving a bunch of money to feed the poor can't get you there. What gets you there? The shedding of blood. And not just any blood, but the blood of God's only son. Now, Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn, brought an offering for what he had grown as a farmer. All right? So God rejected it. And it's here that we see the first chilling display of the results of Adam's fall. Because anger and a dark countenance etched themselves across Cain's face. Here comes the fallen nature that we were all born with. Cain is the firstborn, the first child born to Adam and Eve, so he's the third human on the planet, but already the disease, sin, the fallen nature. He's been born with that fallen nature, and now here's his brother's sacrifice being accepted, and instead of going, wow, God, next time I'll do it the right way, and having a good attitude about it, and learning, no, no. Murder entered his heart. 
And the Bible says that through jealousy and anger and vengeance, Cain rose up and murdered his brother. And this was humanity's first murder. And when God came looking for him and said to him, hey, Cain, where's your brother? And he popped off. Really, he popped off at God with an attitude. Am I my brother's keeper? How many of you hear attitude in that? Come on. Am I my brother's keeper? What are you asking me about him for? Knowing the full well that he had already he'd killed him and buried him. Oh, I hear an attitude all over that statement. What did God say? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, here's where the language matters. Because this is written in Hebrew. And if you read this in the Hebrew, you will see that blood is plural. So it reads like this. Your brother's bloods cry to me from the ground. Meaning what? Not just your brother you killed, but everybody that would have been born from him. That's why abortion is so heavy. Are you with me? Because it's not just that baby, but it's that baby's bloods, everybody that would have come from that baby. That's the way God sees it. Because God doesn't inhabit time. He knew everybody that would have come from Abel, and it was short-circuited. Now, God placed a mark on Cain. We all know about the mark of Cain. But what we don't know was it wasn't to damn him. It wasn't to make life terrible for him. It was to protect him from somebody taking vengeance on him for Abel's blood. So chapter 4 takes us through Cain's genealogy. If you read chapter 4, I didn't want to read the whole thing, but if you read it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to track Cain's genealogy a few generations, beginning with his firstborn named Enoch. Now, this is not the Enoch that uh, was taken by God in a rapture-type situation. That's another Enoch. In the genealogy of Cain, there's an Enoch. And in the genealogy of Seth, there is an Enoch. We're going to see that in a little bit. So we're told that when Enoch was born, Cain, who's now a vagabond, he's now out there. He's, it says he left the presence of God. He walked away from the presence of God. What a sad statement. He left the presence of God and he went off on his own. And it says he built a city and he named it after his son, Enoch. Now, the reason this matters, church, is because in understanding the progression of evil leading up to the flood, uh, Cain did not build that city to the glory of God. It's really kind of like the Tower of Babel. He built this, it was his idea, it wasn't God's idea. It was his idea. He built a city, he put a wall around it, and he named it after his son, not after God. He didn't do anything for the glory of God. We see now man beginning to live totally horizontally, no view on God at all. Please, please catch this, because we're watching the way the human race went where God finally said, that's it. And so he named it after his son. His focus was horizontal, not up towards God. He did nothing for the glory of God. And another reason he probably built the city was because he was still paranoid. Somebody's going to come after me for the blood of Abel. So I'm going to build a city and put a big wall around it and protect myself. 
Now, the lineage of Cain in chapter 4 ends with a very wicked man named Lamech. Lamech, we find, uh, commits the first act of polygamy. He marries two women. First polygamy in the history of the human race. There it is, right there. Remember that Genesis is the beginning, the beginning of everything. It's where everything began. It's where all the firsts are. So you have the first polygamy here. And these two women gave birth to three sons. Now the first son's name was Jabal or Jabal. I don't know. I guess it depends on where you're from. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. So Jabal or Jabal, I'm going to call him Jabal, became the first official rancher. Here's the first rancher, Jabal. And then he had a brother who was Jubal. And he was the father of all, this is verse 21, chapter 4. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. So here is another first, the first musician. He not only played musical instruments, but he made them. That's Jubal. All right? The third son's name was Tubal Cain. And he forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And, and so with Tubal Cain, we have the first craftsman who worked in bronze and iron. So we've got first here first rancher, first musician, first craftsman. And these are all the lineage of Cain. And so we see man beginning to make a, a life for himself and develop his inherent gifts, but with no vertical focus. It's all this way. We don't hear about any of these, uh, Cain or any of his descendants, glorifying God, seeking God, um, hungering for God, mentioning God, praying to God, nothing. It's the line of Cain. Now the thing to note about Lamech, the father of those three boys, is he traffics in vengeance and violence. And we have another glimpse into how the human race is spiraling downward very, very quickly prior to the flood. He bragged to his two wives. Here's what he said, verse 23. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. And if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now, again, here's where the language matters. Both of the words that Lamech used for the, for the attack that was foisted on him, both words, wounding and injuring, refer to a blow with a fist. He didn't say somebody came after me to kill me. He just says somebody, a young man, hit me with his fist. And what was Lamech's um, response? Well, it says, I killed him. And in the Hebrew language, that means to pierce or to run somebody through with a sharp weapon. So in response to being hit with a fist, Lamech pulled out a sword or a knife and murdered this young man. So it was way over the top. It was an over-the-top response. And he felt totally justified in doing it. So justified, he's bragging to his two wives. He hit me with a fist, but I took him out. And I did it in a bloody way. Ain't that cool? That's the idea. This shows the progress of evil 
in pre-flood mankind. Very important to notice this. That's why these chapters are here leading up to the flood. So we understand why God did what he did. So it's here in verse 24 of chapter 4 that God stops tracking the line of Cain. Uh, and we note that it ends with Lamech, a descendant of Cain, boasting about armed violence and bloodshed. Sounds like America right now. The last two verses of chapter 4 close on a happier note. And here's the happier note. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. And she said, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh, or Enoch, and then men, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Catch that. What did men do immediately when they were in the lineage of Seth compared to Cain? They began to call on the name of Jehovah. I want you to see the contrast between the two. Lineage of Cain, everything horizontal, violent, selfish, all about me, closing myself off, rebellion against God, a renegade, a vagabond. But the line of Seth, we see a righteous vein, and we see them begin to call on the name of the Lord. The Lord here being Jehovah, they began to call on the name of Jehovah. That means they began to pray. That means they began to praise. That means they began to worship. That means, look at this, Cain's lineage, horizontal. Seth's, vertical. And do you know that it's Seth's lineage that Christ came through? Amen? You know that. As far as Eve is concerned, Seth is God's replacement of the murdered Abel. Now notice that after Seth's first child was born by the name of Enosh or Enoch, men began to call on the name of the Lord. So chapter 4 is clearly highlighting two lineages operating in the pre-flood world. And that's what chapter 4 is all about. God wants us to see what was going on. You had two completely different types of people. The evil lineage of Cain, everything horizontal, all about me, the righteous lineage of Seth, calling out on God, worshiping God, honoring God. Cain's descendants glorify violence and bloodshed. They're cruel and they're godless. But Seth's descendants are found crying out to God, calling on the Lord Jehovah. Which Seth would you want to be with? Hello, everybody. Oh, yeah. Give me Seth's descendants any day. Matter of fact, you've been born again. That goes straight back to Seth. Amen? Now, as the ancient world grew universally corrupt, here's what was going on. God uh, and, and forsook God and his service, the ancient world. Good men grew valiant and zealous for God and publicly professed their faith in God. Seth's lineage, listen carefully, they began to distinguish themselves and separate themselves from the ungodly world. They began to bring a separation. We don't live like you. Think like you, walk like you, talk like you. We're this way, you're that way. And we want the world to know we're with him. 
okay? The Hebrew reading is that not only did they begin to call on the name of Jehovah, they began to call on the name of the Lord, but they identified themselves as sons of God because it can also read, then began men to be called or to call themselves by the name of the Lord. See, way back in antiquity, when time was just starting, if you were with God, you wanted everybody to know it. And you identified with his name. Isn't that powerful? They weren't ashamed to be identified with God. So they not only began to call the name of the Lord, but they began to call themselves by the name of the Lord. Sons of God. (laughs) Nothing new under the sun, is there? Because here we are. Uh, Yeah, I walk with the Lord. I'm a Christian. I'm a son of God. And I identify with him. The world's looking this way. I'm looking this way. World's going down the broad road. I'm going down the narrow road. The world lives in the dark. I live in the light. The world lives for themselves. I live for him. And you can go on and on. So chapter 4 is showing us what's going on. Now, when we come to chapter 5, we see that it focuses on the righteous lineage of Seth. And one thing that stands out when you read chapter 5, you can't miss it are these words, and he died. That's repeated eight times in chapter 5. Why does that matter? Because you remember when Satan told Eve, hey, if you eat of that tree, you're not going to die. Remember that? No, no, God said, we eat of it, we're going to die. He said, you're not going to die. God's just holding back on you. He doesn't want you to be wise like him. He's holding back blessings from you. Now, let me ask you, did Satan lie? We know that he lied because in chapter 5 of Genesis, right when humanity gets going, we read over and over again, he died. We read that Adam died, followed by Seth. The name Seth means appointed. And then Enoch died, or Enosh, that means dedicated. Kenan means mortal or frail. Now, see, as they are progressing through time, we note, The human race is becoming aware of their true condition. I'm not incorruptible. I'm frail. I'm mortal. And you can name me that way because that's who I am because of sin. There was a guy named Mahalalal. Never name your kid Mahalalal. But it means praise God. And then came Jared. That means shall come down. Then came Methuselah, who lived 969 years. And his name means his his death shall bring. Another meaning is when he dies, it shall come. And that's going to matter next week because he's the one that lived up to the time of the flood. Lamech means lamentation or despairing. And then came Noah, comfort or rest. So Noah was, of course, the lineage of Seth. So we also note that Enoch did not die, but he was raptured. I love what this says. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There, gone. Right in front of you, gone. Enoch is an Old Testament example of what the rapture is going to look like, everybody. It says Enoch just walked with God, 
And one day he's there and then the next microsecond he's gone. Because God took him. Because he walked with God. So he's the only one in either Cain or uh, Seth's lineage that did not die. Because God took him. Boom. And he was there. That lets me know the rapture is not going to be all of us just kind of generally floating up, waving goodbye to everybody. No, no. It's going to be this way. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise first. How fast? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, in a camera flash, the dead in Christ are going to rise. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trump. We will be there, and then we were not. I don't want to be on a jet lost if the pilot is a believer. Just letting you know. I don't like flying anyway. But watch this now. So chapter 5 tracks eight generations of Seth's descendants. About a thousand years are covered. Because these people lived 700, 800, 900 years before the flood came and the atmosphere and the ecosystem changed. They lived seven, eight, nine hundred years. Can you imagine living that long? By the time you were 50, you were just getting started. By the time you were 100, you started having kids. Life was just getting going. Can you imagine living 700, 800, Methuselah, 969 years? He, we talk about people that almost make it to 100 or make it to 100. He almost made 1,000. Let's see, what would that be? Uh, that would be a long time to be alive, right? So during this time period, two types of people existed, the ungodly of Cain's line and the godly line of Seth. A lot like today where Christians and non-Christians coexist in the same world. Same idea. People of faith, not people of faith. Now we come to chapter 6. Now chapter 6 is heavy stuff. Chapter 6 is where we find God reaching the end of his patience. With renegade mankind. He's had it. This is a thousand years that have gone by now. About 1,200 years from the creation of Adam to the birth of Noah. So a millennium and some change has gone by. And mankind by now is in a bad, bad place. Folks, I read about it, and I'm going to share it with you, but when I read about it, I can't help but think of today and the way our culture and world are going right now. Let me just, let me just read it to you now. This chapter begins with a very controversial set of passages, very controversial. On my radio program where we have call-in questions from around the country, I can't tell you how often we've gotten this question, a question about this very thing right here. And so I don't know, I might offend some of you with my answer, um, but here goes. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, underline that those three words, the sons of God, circle it, highlight it, whatever, because that's, those, that's the buzz phrase right there. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, 
And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, the controversy about this verse has swirled around just who the sons of God were. Now, I'm going to give you one side, then I'm going to give you my side. Some contend that these were angels. Sons of God were angels. People say, see, when you, when you go to the book of Job, for instance, it says, when the day came that the sons of God presented themselves to God, all right, and those were angels, and they say this is the same thing here. So the sons of God, they contend that they were angels who decided to leave their God-ordained post and cohabit with women which allegedly produced giants in the Hebrew Nephilim in the earth. Now, so I want to be sure you get this now. And this is a very popular view. There's, listen, it's all over social media. Um, it's one of the hot-button topics of, of many Christians. This belief is everywhere that angels looking down at the beauty of earthly women, said, I'm going to morph into a human being. I'm going to become a human being or take on the form of a man and I'm going to cohabit with earthly women. That's what sons of God meant. You've heard it. Many of you have heard this. And so it produced these Nephilim. These giants. Now, these Nephilim are assumed by some, those that believe this, to be sort of half man, half spirit. Hybrids. Some say demigods. Some say celestial spirits trapped in a human body. But they all who believe this believe it's a race of beings unlike normal humans. Everybody with me? How many of you have heard this? Oh, yeah. Don't turn on me if I go against you now. No, I want you to follow me. Track with me now. Let, let's follow the Bible here. Those that believe this about hybrids, demigods, celestial spirits, and so on and so forth can't be getting this from the Bible. Let me tell you why. The word giant, let's just take the word giant that, that is in that verse that I read. There were giants on the earth in those days. The word giant is from a Hebrew word simply meaning, are you ready? Giant. <laughs> I know that's complex, but that's what it means. It has nothing to do, nowhere in the Hebrew language, this was written in Hebrew, nowhere in the Hebrew language does it mean hybrid, demigod, celestial spirit, or half man, half spirit. Nowhere. You can't get that out of the meaning of giant. What it's referring to is a race of great physical strength and stature. That's all it's referring to. Just a, just a, a, a genetic, uh, you know, genes do weird things. There's all kinds of different people all over the earth. And this particular genetic strand just produced taller than typical men 
who were very strong. There's men like that around today. I mean, I've seen some women like that today. <laughs> so, just a little levity here. Um, but nowhere can you get this from the language or the context. And they say, but Jeff, it says so right there in verse 2. No, watch. Um, those that hold to the belief in half-angel, half-human also believe that this is the reason why verse 3 is in the Bible. And here's what verse 3 says. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Those that believe in the half-man, half-human, half-spirit, or half-angel hybrids believe that the reason God judged the world is because these angels left their former estate, left their post, and came to the earth, and which created a level of wickedness never before known to the human race, and that's why God judged it. That's why he brought an end to all this. In other words, God said, I've reached the end of my patience. Even my angels are leaving heaven and cohabiting with women and producing these, these creatures, so I've got to end it all to stop this wicked, half-human, half-spirit race from continuing down through time, which may stop the arrival of my son. And for the record, when God says his days shall be 120 years, God was saying, I'm giving man 120 years to repent before I send a flood. We know that Noah built the ark for 120 years. And after it was over, the flood came. God gave man 120 years to repent. Amen. How would they have repented? The preaching of Noah. Because Noah was a preacher. Listen to what 2 Peter 2.5 says. God did not spare the ancient world. That's talking about the pre-flood world. He did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven other members of his family. Noah warned the world. I'm quoting Peter now. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. What did Noah do for 120 years? He built the ark and he preached. He preached and he built the ark. He built the ark and he preached. He preached and he built the ark. And he warned everybody within earshot of him, repent because a great judgment is coming. And he didn't have one convert in 120 years. I'd quit preaching after that. Not one convert, but he stayed faithful. Not one convert. Just Noah, Mrs. Noah, and Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their wives are the only ones that made it into the ark and were saved. That's it. But what was going on in the, the, the civilization that existed before the great flood? Here's a righteous man preaching with fervency for 120 years and nobody took him seriously. I see such a parallel today. Man, we preach and we preach and so many people just walk away. That's why Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. What was man doing? Eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Luke adds, buying and selling. Well, what's wrong with that? Because everything was horizontal. 
There was no vertical worship of God. It was all about me, living for me, doing my thing, going my own way. And, and it shows that with the preaching of Noah, they were utterly unaffected. They kept right on buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage, and just doing life and ignoring the crazy guy down the street, building a boat when there's not even any water to put it in. It's the same thing. He, he, he warned of a flood that had never before been seen. We warn of an arrival of a Messiah never before seen. He will come in the clouds. He will come with power and great glory. And he will bring all the nations of the world in front of himself. He will take his church out. We're warning of an event that nobody has ever seen. Noah warned of an event nobody had ever seen. Nobody believed him. And it's the same thing to a great extent with a lot of people in our day. We're saying Jesus is coming back. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm telling you, as surely as the rain fell in Noah's day, Jesus is coming down in our day. Now, verse 4 again in chapter 6 picks up the narrative of the giants. Let's read it very carefully because here is the key to understanding what was going on. There were giants, Hebrew, Nephilim, on the earth in those days. Everybody say they were there. They were really there. And also what? Afterward. Say that word good and loud. Afterward. Also, afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, when, afterward, after what? The giants were already there. Y'all are really quiet tonight. You're making me nervous. See, because those that believe it was half human, half angel contend that when the angels came down and cohabited with the women, that that's when the giants were born. And those giants came from that union. But they didn't because they were already there before the union. There were already giants. It was just a genetic thing. They did not come from half human, half angel. Am I popping some of y'all's bubble? Then you're thinking... Well, then, Jeff, who, who were the sons of God? The lineage of Seth. Because already in chapter 4, they have identified themselves with the, with the name and person of God. They have already identified themselves as sons of God. So this is the only thing that makes sense. The word afterward is key because it carefully distinguishes the giants from the offspring of the mixed marriages that I'm going to go into more in just a moment. Afterward, the giants already existed. Sons of God had sexual relations with the daughters of men. So the coming together of the sons of God and daughters of men is not what produced the giants. They were already there. What were the mixed marriages and why did God send judgment on the pre-flood world? Well, because the righteous lineage of Seth had begun to backslide and become corrupted. Because look what it says. It's very careful to let us know. The lineage of Seth, the sons of God, began to look at 
the daughters of men, and that clearly is the line of Cain. Men, daughters of men, the horizontal line of Cain. They began to look at them. And, and what does that tell you? They were not marrying these women for their character or their walk with God. Are y'all with me? No, they were marrying them because they thought they were hot. I'm just telling you. That's why they were doing it. Now, let me ask you something. If you're a godly man, is that how you pick a woman? You better not. You better not, unless you want to cry some tears for a long time. Oh, Pastor Jeff, she's so good looking. Let me tell you something. After the first year, the thrill is gone, buddy. You're down to living with somebody's character. It's the character you're going to get old with, not the body. Because sooner or later, everything goes south. I'm just being real. But what did, the, what, what did the sons of God, the line of Seth, do? The Bible is so clear. When the sons of God saw the daughters of men, they started grabbing these women and they made wives of, of, of as many, it says, as they wanted. That's the lust of the flesh. That's the lust of the eyes. They're not, they're not moving in godly character. So it's letting us know that the sons of Seth had begun to backslide and become corrupted. And they co-mingled with the lineage of Cain, which God always warns about, doesn't he? Let me read it to you. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Seth, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Everybody say, none. What communion has light with darkness? I've got about 20 of you saying none. Come on, everybody. And what accord has Christ with Belial? None. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? None. In yoking. Not in working with somebody or not in, you know, everybody's got to live in the world. But yoking is very strong. It means where you go they go, where they go, you go, what they eat, you eat, what they believe, you believe. Yoking is way stronger than just kind of hanging with somebody or having to be around them because you live in a world full of people. This is what caused God to say, my spirit will not always strive with men because now I've lost the righteous lineage to corruption. And this is the verdict of Scripture. Listen to it. God looked down after the line of Seth had corrupted themselves, and the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. How bad was it? He saw that everything they thought about or everything they imagined was consistently and totally evil. The condition of men had gotten to the place, not one time did a righteous thought enter their mind. The whole planet, including the line of Seth. Mm -mm. That's why God said, that's it, curtains. I'm starting over. 
You think God can't do that now? You think he won't do that now? You better believe he will. And you better, listen, judgment is coming, folks. I don't know if you're aware of that, but can I just tell you tonight, judgment is coming. God's going to judge this world. That's why you better walk tight with Jesus. Stay in the faith. Stay in the word. Walk with him. Talk with him. Grow in him. Because we're the line of Seth. We're not the line of Cain. We're the line of Seth. I'm going to give you two quick key reasons why the angel-woman union can't be true. Real quickly. First, angels are all sexual. Angels are all sexual. Don't tell me they became a man. They're all sexual. Jesus said, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. They don't marry. You know why? They're asexual. What do you mean asexual? They're genderless. Second, even if they wanted to, angels don't have the power to morph themselves into human beings. Though they sometimes appeared as angels on earth, like Abraham had the three men walk up and we know they were angels, but God sent them that way. God sent them that way. God can do whatever God wants. But it wasn't angels that independently said, let's go, let's go pay Abe a visit. No, God sent them. Are you with me? All right. Chapter 6, verse 6, we're almost, I'm about to close. The Lord repented, it says in verse 6, that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord repented. And you got to be very careful with this. I know I've given you a lot tonight. But you got to be careful with this. I've gotten calls on this on To Every Man an Answer on 91.3 FM from 5 to 6. Just because some of you are looking at me like a calf stares at a new gate when I talk about that show. So it's on 91.3 FM from 5 to 6 weekdays. And I'm on two or three times a week. So somebody called and said, well, wait a minute. If God's perfect, then how in the world could he repent? Another translation says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Well, see, that presupposes, if you tell me uh, that God regretted something, then that means he didn't know a certain thing was going to happen. In other words, God looked and God was as curious as anybody else to see how man was going to do. And when man went south, God said, wow. Wow, I regret this. I regret that I made them. You know what that says? God made a mistake. And God doesn't make mistakes. And God doesn't repent. Listen to Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. So what does it mean when it says the Lord repented? All it means is God was deeply grieved in his heart at the sin. How many of you have ever felt the grieving of the Holy Spirit in your heart or something you said, did, thought, or whatever? Come on, tell the truth. Some of you got the halo over your head. How many of you have ever felt the Holy Spirit grieved and you had to say, God, forgive me? Amen. All right, same thing here. The Spirit of God was grieved. And so God is saying, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm grieved to the extent that I'm signaling a turn. 
in the way that I have dealt with men in mercy and long-suffering. I'm making a turn. It's over. I'm about to do something totally different. My mercy has reached the full. That's it. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. I am sorry. I'm deeply grieved over their sin. But the very next verse gives us a ray of sunshine, a little bit of hope, and I'm going to end with this. Noah found favor. But Noah, where's Noah? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know what that's signaling? Even though I'm sending judgment, I'm going to keep hope out there. If you repent, there's a boat for you. Amen? Can we stand together? Now, I know this is kind of deep stuff. It's a little bit heady. But how many of you know we need to understand these things? We need to understand them. Because these things are under attack in our culture. And um, I fully believe that there was a great big boat called the ark full of all the animals, dinosaurs, creepy crawly things. And I'm going to talk about that. Jesus believed it. If Jesus believed it, it's good enough for me. As it was in the days of who? Noah. All right, let's lift our hands to the Lord. Lord, we just thank you right now. Thank you for helping us to see and understand why the wrath of God was poured out on the pre-flood world. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of God that has saved us and brought us into the ark of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Thank you for it, Lord. We bless your name. Can we thank the Lord that we're in that line of Seth? Hallelujah. We're calling on the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen, 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 amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen.